First Kings chapter 12. First Kings chapter 12. We are in the divided kingdom now. Uh, there's no longer a single solitary nation. Now there's two. Um, even though God sees them as the same people, there are two kingdoms now. And what's interesting is when we, we begin the northern kingdom, it begins with the story that is basically going to become the recurring theme for the northern kingdom. The sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That particular phrase, you will find it mentioned 22 times in the Bible. While the northern kingdom of Israel had many issues, this particular sin is God's chief problem with them, from their inception until their judgment. If Solomon and Rehoboam are disappointing character studies, because remember, that's the whole theme of First uh, Kings is, you know, covenants and characters. So we're looking at a lot of different characters and studying their lives. If Solomon and Rehoboam are disappointing character studies, the kings of Israel are even more. For the northern kingdom never had a godly king, not a single one. And that awful unbroken chain starts with Jeroboam's reign. So chapter 12, we begin in verse 25. This is right after, it says, then Jeroboam built Shechem. This is right after Rehoboam and his army turn around because they're going to invade and they're going to stop this rebellion. Then the Lord sends a prophet, a man of God, to tell him, nope, turn around. This is of me. And Rehoboam, oddly enough, listens. And he turns around. And so the formation of two kingdoms begin. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in Mount Ephraim, and he dwelt therein and went out from thence and built Penuel. Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Here we get some insight into the concerns of this new king, Jeroboam. First off, he's concerned about his borders with Judah. For it says that the first thing he did as king is he built Shechem, or literally fortified the city of Shechem. This was the city that Rehoboam had gone to for his coronation ceremony, the city that then he had fled with every single soldier he could find. This is a city now where Jeroboam is going to make his capital. It says he built Shechem in Mount Ephraim, in the hill country right there in that area just north of Jerusalem. And it says he dwelt there, which means he settled down. Shechem became his capital. A later king will move it to Samaria, but for now, this is where the capital of the northern kingdom is. And Shechem makes sense at this time. It was one of the most important cities in Israel, controlling commercial and military traffic in the central hill country of Israel. That was crucial if he was going to keep an eye on Judah, as Jerusalem was only 40 miles to the south, which is going to become a point of paranoia for Jeroboam. They're just right over the border. Now, God had told him, you leave Judah alone. I will prosper you and make your kingdom great if you will just walk with me. Don't worry about anything else. But Jeroboam did worry. He couldn't see how God would do what God promised if he didn't help it along. And so he fortifies Shechem, and then he goes and he fortifies, it says, a city of Penuel. Penuel is a city on the Jabbok River, which is on the other side of the Jordan River. Fortifying it would then protect the rich land of Gilead from invasion by the kingdom of Judah. So he does these military fortifications, but military strategy wasn't enough to quell his concerns. While fortifying these cities gives us a glimpse into his concerns, doing that 
wasn't sin, but his next actions are sin. In verse 26, we see his doubts about God's promise. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. Matthew chapter 12, 34 tells us that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus puts it this way. O generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. At some point, Jeroboam had been, he'd been thinking about all this, and then at some point, he verbalizes his fears so it can be written for our admonition. Somewhere out loud, he goes, they're going to go back. They're going to go back. They're going to go back. And that is a direct contradiction to what God told him. In 1 Kings 11, verses 37 and 38, God told him, and I will take you, and you shall reign according to all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And it shall be, if you will hearken unto all that I command you, to, that you, and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments, as David my servant did, that I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house, as I built for David, and I will give Israel unto you. If Jeroboam would just walk with the Lord, he never had to fear this. But he comes out and he flat out contradicts what God promised. And that is a fast track to trouble. Wisdom, which people sometimes ask, what's the difference between wisdom and intelligence? Well, you could be intelligent and be really bad at life. I know many intelligent people who are not very good at life. But wisdom literally means skill at living skill at doing life. Skill at doing life, wisdom, doesn't come by leaning on my own understanding, no matter how smart I am. It comes by trusting the Lord. And Jeroboam did not trust the Lord. And his line of reasoning sends him into dangerous thinking. Now, why is he concerned that now the tribes will go back? Shouldn't his plan for strong fortresses give the people rest from fear of retribution? Well, it wasn't retribution Jeroboam feared. Jeroboam feared regret over the decision they'd made, that they would think to themselves, why did we do this? And the reason being is they would be going down very soon to Jerusalem to worship. Look at verse 27, why he doubts God's promise. He says, if this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again to their Lord, even unto Rehoboam, king of Judah. And look at where his thinking takes him. And then they will kill me and go again to Rehoboam, king of Judah. Now, why is he worried about this? Well, every Israeli man over the age of 20 was required to be in Jerusalem for Passover, for Pentecost, and for the Feast of Tabernacles. Many didn't obey God in this, but they did make the journey often enough that every time they would have a feast, most of the people in attendance would be from his kingdom, would be his subjects. There's 10 tribes following him and only two following Rehoboam. So even if only a few people came down, the majority of the attendees there are going to be his subjects. And he's thinking to himself, if they go down there and they worship together with the people of Judah, they're going to realize we're all one and the same. We're all Israelis, and they're just going to abandon me and go back to Rehoboam, and then they'll have to kill me to prove their loyalty. Which isn't it funny how our brains work like that? Like we start off with a real problem, like a real concern. You know, we start off with a real concern. And then somehow it ends up with us dead and our family starving, right? I mean, am I not right? I remember when I got sick, you know, four or five years ago, and one of my biggest fears was my poor wife is going to be left with five kids to take care of all by herself. 
And I would go to bed at night fretting and thinking about this and to the point where it would become a reality, even though nothing was even close to that. This is why that's dangerous thinking. We need to meditate on God's promises and rest there. Jeroboam became concerned that the religious unity his people had with Judah would over, eventually overwhelm the political divide. It's also possible that Jeroboam had started to feel the burden of leading a nation. He couldn't blame Solomon or Rehoboam or any of Judah's advisors now for the complaints he received. And it's very likely that those fortified cities that he rushed to build, that they were done with forced labor. So whether he'd heard some grumbling about his leadership or was just his paranoia, either way, he convinces himself that he is doomed if the people go to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. And so Jeroboam comes up with a plan, verse 28, whereupon the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold and said unto them, his people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin for the, pe for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. Now, this phrase, took counsel, does not mean he sought counsel from his advisors. I think if he had done that, he might have gotten a different answer. It means he sought counsel or advice from himself. That is the very definition of leaning on my own understanding, isn't it? He sought counsel from himself. And that's why it is called the sin of Jeroboam. This was his idea alone. No one coerced him. No one suggested this to him. This was his proposed solution. And so he made two calves, or literally uh, the male bull calf, these bulls with the long horns. When you talk about the golden calf that Israel worshipped, it was a bull with horns. He made these two bulls, horned bulls of gold, and said unto them, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. The phrase here too much means you've been doing this long enough. This is a fascinating political move here. Basically, Jeroboam decides to appeal to an incorrect ideal, but one that would fire up the people. He says, listen, the way that Judah's worshiping right now isn't the way we've always done it. In fact, this is something new when Solomon built the temple. The last 20, 20 years of worshiping at, the, at the, worshiping at the temple is not our heritage or our history. I am always concerned when Christians wish to look to either church history or Hebrew tradition for their answers on how we should worship. I'm always concerned. I'm always concerned, they're like, why are we doing this now? They didn't do this then. I commonly hear the phrase, as a pastor, we need to get back to the early church's way of doing things, to which I always respond the same way. Which one? Which church are you talking about? Should we go back to Ephesus, who left their first love Jesus in just a few decades? Oh, should we go back to Corinth, who had division and doctrinal error in their church? Should we go back to Jerusalem, or the churches in Galatia, who were constantly influenced by legalism? Which one do you want us to go back to? Which one of these is your perfect church that you're imagining? These ideas are dangerous because they presume that things were problem-free in the past because that age did things a certain way, or that culture or that time period did things a certain way. It's wonderful when you go visit another, like another culture, like when you go on a mission trip and you go visit a church. There are special things when you do that, right? 
Like I love being down in, in Chile and going to church there. There's, there's a preciousness to the fellowship there. I loved being in Haiti as, a, as a, uh, a teenager on a mission trip there. I absolutely loved worshiping out in the middle of some basically jungle in a basically a big hut and just the closeness that felt there, all right? That's great. I like AC. There's nothing wicked about AC and there's nothing holy about a jungle. But just because we had special experiences when we went somewhere that did things a little bit different doesn't make one evil and one good. And we can sometimes do the same thing when we visit a past age in history and we look at how somebody did church and we go, whoa, but look at what God did during that time. They must have, this is, must be the way to do it. And it's like, listen, they had issues just like we had issues because a church is filled with people. That presumption that things were problem-free in the past because they did things a certain way is always false because every church of every age has had challenges. Really, if we want to pick a model church to look at from the New Testament, it would be the church at Antioch. But even the church at Antioch, which, again, I think is the best example of how church should be done, they had issues. Paul had to rebuke Peter in in the middle of a a big, huge dinner at Antioch because of, of his divisiveness. Things were not perfect there. So Jeroboam claims here that Israel's traditional worship is very different than the one that Solomon instituted when he built the temple. He claims that Israel's true worship was rooted in the leadership of a different man, a man named Aaron. And then he quotes the passage from Exodus where Aaron led the people to worship a golden bull. He said unto them, you've been doing this long enough, we need to get back to the original way we did things. Behold your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I want to read Exodus 32, verses 4 and 5 to you because it's almost an exact quote. Exodus 32, verses 4 and 5, it says, and he, Aaron, received at them received them at their hand, the golden earrings, and he fashioned it with a graving tool that after they had made it a molten calf. And they said, the tribal leaders, these be your gods, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw it, he made an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. When Aaron built that golden calf, Aaron didn't say, hey, look at this God and give him a new name. No, he said, we're going to have a feast to Jehovah. This is Jehovah. And the people said, these are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. Aaron didn't say those words, but the tribal leaders did. But it's clear that those leaders got the idea from Aaron. And Aaron sanctioned their words by making a calf and then building an altar in front of it so the people could make offerings to it. What Jeroboam is claiming here is that his bulls are the most original form of Israeli worship, created by their first high priest Aaron and supported by every tribal leader back then. They've worshiped Solomon's way for 20 years, but that's plenty. They need to get back to their roots. Now, Jeroboam's not wrong. This was one of Israel's most original forms of worship after they left Egypt. He just neglects to tell the rest of the story that God judged them for it because it was idolatry. When I read this as I was studying, my first thought was, how can anybody fall for this? And then all I had to do was just read a couple articles online and go, oh, things haven't changed. And think about it for just a minute. It's not, I know I made a silly remark right there about gullibility and how we don't know the word. But think about being an Israeli at that time. 
Jeroboam isn't telling them to go worship another god. He's telling the people that he's returning them to the original worship of Jehovah their God. And if you don't know the word very well, that appeals to your desire to want to please the Lord. One of the things it says in the New Testament about false prophets is they make merchandise of your desire to worship God. I don't think, so as a young man and young pastor, I would hear about false doctrine. I'd get all fired up and I'm like, what's wrong with people? What's wrong with these teachers? How can these things happen? But then as you start to interact with people and, and who are involved in this, and then they come and they hear the word, and then they have questions. And then you start talking to them. I'm like, yeah, but they taught me this. And I'm like, well, I understand that, but that's not what the Bible says. You start to see that the, a large portion of these people, they have a sincere desire to worship the Lord. They just don't know the word. Now, that's their own fault. It's an open book test, all right? It's right here. We can look at it. So I can't ever blame anyone else. I can't hold anyone else responsible when I'm not where I should be. I'm not worshiping God correctly. But I have a little bit of compassion. I have a lot of compassion because I was in a place like that once. I was in a place where I believed some things and worshiped some ways that weren't biblical. And it's because I didn't know the word. And so if you're in an environment where you don't know the word very well and the word's not being taught and someone starts praying on, someone in leadership that you respect starts praying on the fact that you just want to please the Lord. You love Jesus and you want to honor him and please him. And they're telling you, well, this is how you do that. It's very easy to get manipulated to doing something that maybe even at first you wonder, well, I don't know if that sounds right. These people didn't know God's word very well at this time. And Solomon had already muddied the waters by constructing temples to other gods. It would be very easy for Jeroboam to sell this as true worship instead of idolatry. And so, verse 29 tells us he set the one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Bethel is only 12 miles north of Jerusalem. It's right on the border of Ephraim and Benjamin. So it'd be right there on the borders between the two kingdoms. The tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant had been set up in Bethel during most of the period of the judges. Again, an original worship site. We're going back to our roots, back to Bethel. So he builds one there, and then he puts one in Dan. Dan is far up north near Mount Hermon, one of the most northern cities in the nation of Israel. Dan already had a huge worship site there dedicated to an idol. Dan was not a worshiper of the Lord. It was one of the first tribes to go into idolatry, and really, I don't think they ever recovered from that. It had been there from the beginning of the time of Judges. Well, it'd be very easy for Jeroboam to convert it to Jehovah worship by putting the second calf there. Jeroboam might even be seen as a reformer for doing so. We're going to get rid of these idols. We're going to go back to the worship of Jehovah and Dan even. Revival's going on in Israel. If you ever come to Israel with us, we will see a calf worship site in that area of Tel Dan. It's one of the oldest worship sites excavated in Israel. Now, these two locations in the north and the south made it convenient for any Israeli, uh, much more so than going all the way down to Jerusalem. And with the added weight of getting back to their roots, the people bought it hook, line, and sinker. Verse 30, and this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one even unto Dan. They went, the language there is they went to, for Bethel and even went all the way up to Dan. Now, the reason it became a sin is because Jeroboam violated two important commands from God. The first one was the second commandment, I believe, in Exodus 24, 20, verses 4 and 5. 
where the Lord says, you shall not make unto you any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down yourself to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So God had said, don't ever make an image of me. I don't care what it is, not of an angel, not of uh, any planetary things, any earthly things or anything in the ocean. Doesn't matter, don't make any image of me. And then in chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, we read it in our scripture reading, God tells them, when you come into the land, you're not going to do things like you are now where you just worship wherever. He says, when we get into the land, I'm going to pick a place and I'm going to put my name there, and that's where you're going to worship. In Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, he says, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall you seek, and there shall you come, and there you'll bring all your offerings, you'll eat before the Lord, and you'll celebrate with your family. So God had told them, I'm going to pick the place you worship when you come into the land, not you. Now, those two commands teach me two important things about worship. Number one, I don't get to choose how I worship God. And number two, I don't get to choose where I worship God. I am to yield both of those things to the Lord. I have to yield both of those things to the Lord. Worship must be done in obedience to how God says it should be. I might want to run around the room and scream incoherently at the top of my lungs. I could even scream Jesus. But nowhere is that listed as a way to worship God. I might want to sit quietly and never open my mouth, but that's also not a way that it tells us that we're to regularly worship God. Because God tells us that worship is not those things, then it is not worship no matter how I feel. Sometimes people will do things that are out of the ordinary, out of the, what the Bible has to say regarding worship, and I will have to talk to them about it, and I'll say, well, I just really felt like I needed to do that. And I'm like, that's great, but then that's you. That's not worship. That's something you want to do. That's not worship. Worship isn't about a feeling. In fact, I dare say that the very concept of worship can become idolatry if it's feelings-based. I can begin to seek a feeling or an emotional experience, and that becomes the thing I worship and I search for, and if it doesn't happen, that I didn't meet with God. I have to learn to worship even when I don't feel anything. I have to learn to worship when I don't even sense that connection to the Lord. Now, when I worship, do I, I frequently sense that? Yes. But there are times, the Bible talks about it in the book of Jeremiah, where we need to learn to be a tree that brings forth fruit in winter. There are times when it's winter when the Lord seems really far away. The branches feel like they're withering. We have to still learn to bear fruit. Worship is not a feeling. It's not an experience. It is defined by Scripture. And he tells us to sing to Him, to surrender to Him, to contemplate Him, to obey Him, to serve Him, and to celebrate Him. And that we're to do all those things in a decent and orderly fashion as prescribed by His Word. This also means that worship is not something solitary. It's not something I just get to do on my own. It's not also not something that, um, that is always going to be at the place of my choosing. God chooses where I am to worship. The Bible teaches us to gather publicly to worship, to place ourselves underneath those who He calls to lead us in worship. Therefore, worship must include me stepping out of my personal space into the lives of my brothers and sisters. 
to be a part of a local congregation in my service, in my surrender, and in my singing. I have no more right than Jeroboam to define what worship is or where worship to take place. God picked Jerusalem, and He picked the temple, and He set out in His Word how Israel was to worship there. Therefore, I must not repeat Jeroboam's mistake. Now, sadly, Jeroboam didn't even stop there. Look at verse 31. And he made a house of high places and made priests to the lowest of the people, which were not of the sons of Levi. And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on that 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that's in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places, which he had made. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the fifteenth day of the eighth month, even the months which he had devised of his own heart, and he ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. There is so much here. First off, it mentions here he made a house of high places. That almost sounds like a contradiction. How can you have one house of high places? But the idea here is it means multiple buildings but with the same layout. He basically designed worship sites, and he had them posted all over the nation. High places are another way you just call it as a worship center, a worship site. First uh, Kings 13.32 later will tell us that he built these worship sites all throughout the region of Samaria. Basically, what he says is, listen, we've got Bethel, and we've got Dan as our new temples, but you don't even have to go there regularly. Just go there for the big feasts. You can bring your offerings conveniently at the worship center nearest to you. If we were reading a modern, trans, or modern version of the Scripture, Jeroboam would have started online services. I hope none of you do this. You're here already, so I'm, I hope this is a safe place to say this, but I don't want to hear someone ever say to me and say, well, my church is on YouTube. That's not church. If the teaching's decent, it might be just a place you can hear good teaching, but that's never church. Now, this was also sold as a return to the way things had been in Israel prior to the temple. Even Solomon had made offerings at a worship center in Gibeah before God appeared to him in a dream. He changed after that. He said, no more. I'm not going to do this anymore. All those things were violations of God's word. He had told him, you don't do this. I pick one place where you're going to come worship me. That's why Solomon stopped doing it. Israel wasn't supposed to worship God anywhere else but the tabernacle. Now, was that convenient? Especially if the tabernacle was stationed somewhere down south and you lived up north or somewhere up north when you lived down south? No, it wasn't convenient at all. But worship isn't supposed to be convenient. The nature of the word worship is going down to kiss the ground before the king as you bow to him. I guarantee you kings didn't make that convenient. I don't think the king walked into town. He's like, hey guys, here's an opportunity to bow down to me here. I'm traveling throughout all the cities of the nation, my nation, so everybody can get a chance to do that conveniently. That's not how it works. I was thinking to myself as we were singing that song, what a beautiful name, when it mentions the heavens are roaring. I'm like, what a, what a wrong thing to be the case if it's anyone else experiencing that except God, right? Like, like God's God, so it, it's right for all that attention to be focused on Him. But what a wrong thing it would be for anyone else to be experiencing that. There's absolutely nothing there that is not focused on the Lord. Everything is inconvenient for everybody because we're coming before the king. The only convenience is on his part, the one who sits on the throne. 
You see, when I make worship convenient, it's no longer worship because, well, now it's about me, which is just another form of idolatry. So he, he makes worship in Israel convenient by building these numerous worship sites, but then he does this. It says he made priests of the lowest of the people. Uh, literally, it just means the masses, those who were not descended from Aaron. God had picked out Aaron and his descendants to be the priestly family. The Levites would be there to be his assistants. And so this is the setting that God put for the priesthood. Aaron's family, that's it. So he starts making people priests and serving in worship who weren't tied to Aaron or to the Levites at all. They're from the masses, from all the other tribes. I frequently hear the argument, well, a woman's just as capable as a man to do the job of a pastor, and therefore we should not uphold Paul's command to not allow a woman to be an elder. I always wonder where those Christians stand in the issue of non-Levites being priests, because the writer clearly lists this as a wrong thing by Jeroboam centuries later. The writer doesn't hear and go, this is so forward-thinking of Jeroboam that he would recognize that anyone can do the job of a priest. No, he condemns it. In fact, the book of Ezekiel, it actually talks about how the Levites will still be doing the priestly work in Messiah's temple when Jesus returns to rule and reign, all right? Like, if you're a millennial saint, and you're, you're from the tribe of Reuben, and you're marching into the millennial kingdom, you're like, Jesus, I can do a good job as priest as Bob over here, who's a Levite. And Jesus is going to go, that's great, but you're a Reubenite, and that's not your calling. I mean, like, if I, I say that today, and people get offended, I didn't make the rules. Jesus did. And he can either operate by what he says, or we can call it something else. I don't care how the world wants to define marriage or family or whatever. The Bible says it's this. That's all that matters to me. So we can put titles and call things what they are. I'm a Christian, so this is why I do it this way. Oh, well, we need to be more forward-thinking. Everybody else can do this. A, a woman can do a good job just as a man can. I have no doubt of that, but it has nothing to do with competence or capability. It has to do with calling. Surely other people from other tribes were competent enough to do the job of a priest, but God's commands for service have never been about competence or ability. It has always been about who God sets apart. When we look at who God originally set apart to be the high priest, Aaron clearly was not the best person for the job because he flubbed his first opportunity to lead. But God put him there. God put him there. Nobody else did. In fact, there were probably times that Moses was like, why did you put him there? He might have wondered that about me. <laughs> I know I do sometimes. But you know what? Well, Aaron majorly flubbed his first opportunity to lead. He later became the right person for the job. And so I defer to the Lord's wisdom in this area, not my own understanding and not my own evaluation. Anytime we do that, we're going to get in trouble. And we do it in so many areas of our lives at times. Well, I know God says, you know, that I'm supposed to do this. But it doesn't seem to make sense. Like, this seems to make more sense. Every time I've done that, I've regretted it. <laughs> it's not a single time I've done that and not regretted it. So we must defer to the Lord's wisdom, not our own understanding, our own evaluation. And so, verse 32, he even goes even further. He starts creating his own feasts. 
It says, and Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month. Jeroboam isn't sliding down a, the slippery slope of backsliding. He's sprinting away from the Lord. He ordained this feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that's in Judah. And here we get probably the idea of why he started to get worried. Probably what was happening was is Feast of Tabernacles is just a few weeks away. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to go down to Jerusalem and worship. No, we're not. We do that. It's over for all of us. It's my head and it's your heads. Well, what are we going to do? I got an idea. That's always a bad start. I've got an idea. We will say, hey guys, we're not going to go down in a month down to Jerusalem. We've been doing that long enough. We're going to do our own little Feast of Tabernacles here. And instead of doing it in the seventh month, we're going to do it in the eighth month. The Feast of Tabernacles normally, occupy, uh, normally occurred in the seventh month. Jeroboam kept everything else the same, but he changed the month. And then when it happened, in Bethel, he sacrificed there on the Feast of Tabernacles, brought his offerings. In other words, he, he led the way in this new worship. And he did so very visibly to set an example for the people. Me and Bev were talking about this the other day, how we have observed those who work very hard at disobeying God like work really hard. Man, they put a ton of effort into trying to make leaning on their own understanding work. And what we were talking about is what if just a, a third of that effort was put into trusting or obeying the Lord? You know? It's interesting to watch someone do that because, you know, they, they go and they do this thing that the Lord says don't do, and then they're there and they're like, this is not working. And like, but then they have this idea, well, I have to prove to everyone that I'm still right. I don't want to admit I'm wrong. And so they work really, really hard at continuing to disobey the Lord. Sin is such a weight. It doesn't set anyone free. It just gives the illusion of freedom because somehow I convinced myself I'm doing it my way. Verse 33. So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the eighth month. And here it is. Even in the month which he had devised of his own heart. That is a powerful word. The word devised there, it means to invent a story to make something up. He did something he made up out of his own heart. He wrote a new story. In essence, he created a new religion. And sadly, when I follow Jeroboam's reasoning in my life, I sin the same way. I invent my own religion. I create my own God. And that is the sin of Jeroboam. The, when God says, you know, they did not repent of the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, every time when he's saying they didn't invent of this false religion they created. Now, if you were to pull an Israeli over and ask him and say, why did you create a false religion? They'd look at you like you're weird. What are you talking about? I worship Jehovah. Like, in their mind, there was nothing new about it. But that was God's assessment. This, you invented your own religion, you created your own God. That is the sin of Jeroboam. And for the, all the king, northern kingdom's ups and downs, they never repented of that. And yes, Jeroboam originally did it and got his name assigned to a particular kind of sin. But anyone who embraced his idea that it's okay to make up your own way to worship God joined him in that sin. And this is why Idolatry can still exist under the name of Jesus. I can call it Christianity. I can call it being a follower of the Lord. 
but I'm not a Christian or a follower of Jesus unless I'm actually going the same direction Jesus is. It became very popular in the early 2000s because this was a time period when we started seeing the great falling away of the young people in the church, and everyone was questioning how we did church. And you constantly heard people redefining terms. Are you a Christian? Well, I wouldn't call myself a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. Call it whatever you want. If Jesus is going this way and you're going that way, you're not whatever you're supposed to be. It's that simple. If Jesus is walking this way and he's saying, come, follow me, like he did with the disciples in the Gospels, and I'm going, no, I'm going this way. Or I'll follow you kind of on the side a little bit. Like, we'll parallel each other, Jesus. Like, you're over here, but I can't go over there because there's some things over there I don't agree with, but I'm going to kind of parallel you a little bit over here. That's not following Jesus. Going the same direction Jesus is going will line up with what Jesus himself declared in his word. It will line up with what Jesus himself did in his word. Being a Christian isn't about taking a title, but it's about following Jesus, going the way he's going. First John, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, John, in the letter he wrote, First John, he's confronting the false teaching of Gnosticism that had crept into the church. And in that letter, he, he says some very heavy things. But as he's coming to the end, he kind of just sums it up in real simplistic terms. He says in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, these words. And this is the record, that God has given to us eternal life, and that this life is in His Son. Everything we've learned in Ephesians, right? Like being in Christ, that that is, life is in Jesus. All the riches that God offers, they're all found only in Christ. This is the record. This is, in other words, the testimony that, that I'm declaring to you. God's given us to us eternal life, and you find it in following Jesus. It's in Christ. And then he just comes out and says it. He that has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. As someone said it very wisely, you're either a saint or you're an ain't. You either have him or you don't. I used to ask people, are you a Christian? I don't ask that question anymore. The question I ask now is, do you know the Lord? Do you know the Lord? Especially like if they're new here and, and where I'm out sharing, if I'm sharing my faith, it's one of the, if someone starts giving me the religious jingo, jingo, is that a word? My, so my family, share a little joke. I come home and every time after I preach, they bring up all the metaphors I messed up. Lingo, lingo. I was saying last night, she asked me, I don't know what I was watching, she's like, you know, who are you rooting for? And I said, I don't, I don't have a pony in the race. And she just started laughing at me. She's like, it's horse, Will, it's horse. And I'm like, no, I've heard it, a dog, I've heard that used too. She's like, yes, dog, but never pony. And I'm like, no, pony works. She's like, no one else says that but you. <laughs> I'm a tragic hero. Do you know the Lord? Mm, that's a different question. When did you first begin to know him? What does he mean to you? What's he been teaching you lately? Where's he leading you? Where are you following him? Have you trusted in God's record? 
do you know Jesus and are you following him? Wow. This is 100% the opposite direction God told Jeroboam to go, so now God needs to confront him too, just like he did with Rehoboam and Solomon. Verse 1 of chapter 13, and behold, there came a man of God out of Judah by the word of the Lord unto Bethel, and Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense. And he cried against the altar in the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a child shall be born unto the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon you shall he offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon you, and men's bones shall be burnt upon you. And he gave a sign the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, and the ashes that are upon it shall be poured out. So right in the middle of this feast, while Jeroboam's, I mean, he is everybody's there. We've succeeded. We have thwarted disaster. We're not going to die. I'm not going to die. God already told me when die. Just walk with me. Jeroboam likely thought he was a huge success, but the word behold there means check this out. It always means it's an attention grabber when we see the word behold. It means pay attention because something totally unexpected for him happens. God interrupts his brilliant plan by sending a prophet to meet him. And he sends a prophet, it says, out of Judah. This guy, Ahijah, this is not Ahijah. Ahijah was the guy who originally told Jeroboam, hey, you're going to be king and God's going to give you ten tribes. He is involved in Jeroboam's life later on, but God sends this unnamed guy who is, he's like on his little, when he walks up and his little thing says, you know, like you go to Disney and it tells you where they're from. Like he's got a little thing, you know, graduate from Samuel School of Prophets from Judah. I think God sent this guy because his place of origin had to irk Jeroboam. And it would bring to Jeroboam's thinking a major problem with his thinking. While it was God's will to divide the nation politically, the people's worship had zero need to be divided. They were all supposed to remain unified in that. And so Jeroboam had wickedly gone further than what God had called him to do. God sometimes sends a person I least expect or least want to speak into my life in order to jolt me, to grab my attention, to get me out of the rut of my own understanding so I, actually, I can actually see the wrongness of what I'm doing. Are there brothers or sisters in your life that you would not receive God's word from? That's not a good thing if your answer is yes. We came and he stood here by the, while Jeroboam stood by the altar to burn incense, the timing of the prophet's arrival makes us a very public message for him from God. Everyone would know what God thought about Jeroboam's actions. And he starts off not by speaking to Jeroboam, but by crying against this altar, proclaiming opposition to this worship area, this altar. And he does so with the word of the Lord. This prophet may have hated what Jeroboam did, but this wasn't about the prophet's opinions. It was a message straight from God. And he says to him, behold, a child will be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and upon you, altar, shall he, this king, Josiah, offer the priests of the high places that burn incense upon you. And then he clarifies men's bones, not living people because human sacrifice was forbidden by God's law. That's not what he's saying. He goes, he's going to dig up the bones of, of the, uh, the priests here that serve here and are basically be given honored places of burial near this worship site. He's going to dig those things up and he's going to burn them on these altars. A simple but amazing prophecy. 
Josiah is named 290 years before he becomes king of Judah. And Josiah takes this action 80 years after the northern kingdom's gone. Gone, defeated, and hauled off into captivity by the Assyrians. <laughs> there are those who say that God doesn't know the future because it's impossible to know something that hasn't happened yet. That God is just really good at making his plans happen. But the Bible teaches that God is eternal. He's outside of time and he knows the end from the beginning. And yet, just as amazing as God naming a man and what he will do almost 300 years before he comes onto the scene is God's mercy in this declaration. God doesn't send this prophet to wipe Jeroboam off the map. Despite the fact that Jeroboam is violating the one thing God told him not to do, God gives this new king time to repent. He gives every king of Israel after Jeroboam over 200 years to eradicate this new worship system. And so, when God's judgment falls, it's been after years and years and years of calling them to repentance. There are only a very few occasions in the Bible when God judges a person immediately. Ananias and Sapphira is one of those times. But that's not the norm. That is not the norm how, of how God operates. I don't know why God does that on certain occasions. Most of the time, though, God pleads with a person or a people or a group of people over and over and over again. He doesn't speak in mysteries or riddles either. He confronts sin and he calls to repentance. And so I was thinking about this because I know particularly in our day, one of the things I hear a lot from Christians who are struggling with their faith is, I just don't understand why God would send anyone to hell. But the truth is, I don't think a Christian should ever wonder why God created hell or why he would send people there. We should wonder why all of us aren't there right now why there's a cross. To me, it makes far more sense for hell and judgment to exist than salvation. And yet, salvation does. And that's what makes being saved so amazing. I'm not just spared judgment. I'm raised to be a joint heir with God's own son. That's why we call it amazing grace. There will always be reasons to doubt God's goodness but I need to latch on to reality in the midst of those doubts that God is far more gracious than I would ever be. And he is always good. Well, you can't just walk into the king's presence while he's worshiping and say something like this without proof. So his graduate pin from Samuel's school of prophets that said from Judah probably wasn't helping either. And so the prophet predicts something immediately to prove that what he's saying is true. Verse three, he gave a sign, miracle, the same day saying, this is the sign, the proof, the miracle which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be rent, split into pieces, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. Now, there is huge significance in that. The fatty part, the word here for ashes, it means the part of the wood that mixed with the fatty part of the animal. The fatty part was the best part in that culture, and so God always received that part of the offering. And as that fatty part burned on the altar and mingled with the wood that it burned it, it symbolized God eating his portion, that he accepted your offering and now he was sharing a meal with you. For the altar to break and the fatty part to spill on the ground, it'd be like you inviting someone over for dinner and putting a plate in front of them and then taking the plate and going. It meant that God did not eat, that the offering was rejected and he would have no part of your worship. 
Well, the combination of where this guy came from and what he said angers Jeroboam, verse 4. And it came to pass when King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar in Bethel, that he put forth his hand from the altar saying, arrest that man, lay hold on him. It means arrest or seize that man. But his hand which he put forth against him dried up so that he could not pull it in again to him. The word dried up there means to become rigid. The muscles in his hand, his fingers, his arm all the way up to his elbow, painfully contracted so that the entire part from his elbow down to his fingers became paralyzed. That'd be a bit of a wake-up call, don't you think? That finally got Jeroboam's attention. And you know, here's the truth. If you and I won't respond to the mercy God's giving to us, he will up the ante. It's how much he loves us. He loves you and those around you enough that he makes it very difficult for you to remain caught up in your self-delusion. Well, verse 5, the altar was also torn and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of God. And so the king answered and said unto the man of God, entreat now the face of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand might be restored again. And the man of God besought the Lord and the king's hand was restored him again and became as it was before. Jeroboam initially acted like the prophet of Judah had zero jurisdiction over him or in his new kingdom. He doesn't repent of making these idols, but he does recognize that fallacy. He does recognize that his make-believe religion doesn't change God's authority over all of his people, including him. But sadly, Jeroboam never goes any farther than that. And this becomes a huge character flaw, not just for him, but for all the kings who rule the northern kingdom after him. Most of them will recognize God's authority, and they'll even involve God's prophets in their lives. But they never let it affect their heart. And that's what God had told Jeroboam he wanted from him. Walk with me with all your heart like David did, and I'll bless you. So as I close this out, we'll pick up next week because we've got a whole weird interaction with this this guy with a little pin that says from Judah, um, because he's going to do some funky things later, so we need to spend some time on that next week. But when I read this account of Jeroboam, it it challenges me, I want to be like David. Not perfect, I could never claim that, but I want to have a heart that longs to obey the Lord, that longs to know the Lord better each day. So let's be those who reject the sin of Jeroboam. Let's not deceive ourselves into thinking we can create our own religion, even if we get all the terms correct. Let's be those who have a heart after God. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we recognize that you have a big issue with the sin of Jeroboam. Lord, that you are a jealous God and that you will share your glory with nobody. So Lord, you don't allow us to create our own idea of you and worship that instead. You're never pleased with that. You're never okay with that. You're always calling us upward, closer to your, to your standard, to your ideal, always bringing us back there. No matter how long we've walked with you and no matter how much we've grown, you're always bringing us back there. So Lord, tonight we say we come. You're our God, you're our only God. And Lord, I pray if there have been any areas that maybe we've created our own idea of you, our own idea of worship, that if you put your finger on them, then Lord, we just decide to lay them at your feet tonight and to forsake those things and Lord, to do things your way. 
And then for anyone tonight who's making that fresh commitment to you, Lord, fill them with your spirit, help them to live it out, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.